July 30th. Well, Boada is dead. This time for sure. We'll bury her tomorrow. Deborah was hurt. Just how badly, I can't say, but she managed to fight Boada off. Tough woman, though she seems a little shaken, and with good reason. It happened this way. Sara and I were in the tool shed after dinner, building more shelves for the upstairs study. Though the fireflies were out, there was still a little daylight left. Deborah had gone up to bed after doing the dishes. She's been tired a lot lately. Falls asleep early every night while watching TV with Sar. He thinks it may be something in the well water. It had begun to get dark, but we were still working. Sar dropped a box of nails, and while we were picking them up, he thought he heard a scream. Since I hadn't heard anything, he shrugged and was about to start sawing again when, fortunately, he changed his mind and ran off to the house. I followed him as far as the porch, not sure whether to go upstairs until I heard him pounding on their bedroom door and calling Deborah's name. As I ran up the stairs, I heard her say, Wait, don't come in. I'll unlock the door soon. Her voice was extremely hoarse, practically a croaking. We heard her rummaging in the closet, finding her bathrobe, I suppose, and then she opened the door. She looked absolutely white. Her long hair was entangled and her robe buttoned incorrectly. Around her neck she had wrapped a towel, but we could see patches of blood soaking through it. Sar helped her over to the bed, shouting at me to bring up some bandages from the bathroom. When I returned, Deborah was lying in bed, still pressing the towel to her throat. I asked Sar what had happened. It almost looked as if the woman had tried suicide. He didn't say anything, just pointed to the floor on the other side of the bed. I stepped around for a look. A crumpled gray shape was lying there, half covered by the bedclothes. It was Boada, a wicked-looking wound in her side. On the floor next to her lay one of the Porith's old black umbrellas, the thing Deborah had used to kill her. She told us she'd been asleep when she felt something crawl heavily over her face. It had been like a bad dream. She'd tried to sit up, and suddenly Boada was at her throat, digging in. Luckily, she'd had the strength to tear the animal off and dash to the closet where the first weapon at hand was the umbrella. Just as the cat sprang at her again, Deborah said she'd raised the weapon and lunged. Amazing. How many women, I wonder, would have had such presence of mind? The rest sounds incredible to me, but it's probably the sort of crazy thing that happens in moments like this. Somehow, the cat had impaled itself on the umbrella. Her voice, as she spoke, was barely more than a whisper. Sar had to persuade her to remove the towel from her throat. She kept protesting that she wasn't hurt that badly, that the towel had stopped the bleeding. Sure enough, when Sar finally lifted the cloth from her neck, the wounds proved relatively small, the slash marks already clotting. Thank God that thing didn't really get its teeth in. My guess, only a guess, is that it had been weakened from days of living in the woods. It was obviously incapable of feeding itself adequately, as I think was proved by its failure to eat the hens it had killed. While Sar dressed Deborah's wounds, I pulled back the bedclothes and took a closer look at the animal's body. The fur was matted and patchy. Odd that an umbrella could make a puncture like that, ringed by flaps of skin, the flesh seeming to push outward. Deborah must have had the extraordinary good luck to have jabbed the animal precisely in its old wound, which had reopened. Naturally, I didn't mention this to Sar. He made dinner for us tonight, soup actually, because he thought that was best for Deborah. Her voice sounded so bad he told her not to strain it any more by talking, at which she nodded and smiled. We both had to help her downstairs as she was clearly weak from shock. In the morning, Sar will have the doctor out. He'll have to examine the cat too to check for rabies, so we put the body in the freezer to preserve it as well as possible. 
Afterward, we'll bury it. Deborah seemed okay when I left. Sara was reading through some medical books, and she was just lying on the living room couch, gazing at her husband with a look of purest gratitude. Not moving, not saying anything, not even blinking. I feel quite relieved. God knows how many nights I've lain here thinking every sound I heard was Boada. I'll feel more relieved, of course, when that demon's safely underground, but I think I can say, at the risk of being melodramatic, that the reign of terror is over. Hmm. Still a little hungry. Used to more than soup for dinner. Those daily push-ups burn up energy. I'll probably dream of hamburgers and chocolate layer cakes. July 31st. The doctor collected scrapings from Boada's teeth and scolded us for doing a poor job of preserving the body. Said storing it in the freezer was a sensible idea, but that we should have done so sooner since it was already decomposing. The dampness, I imagine, must act fast on dead flesh. He pronounced Deborah in excellent condition. The marks on her throat are, remarkably, almost healed, but he said her reflexes seemed a little off. Sar invited him to stay for the burial, but he declined, and quite emphatically at that. He's not a member of their order, doesn't live in the area, and apparently doesn't get along that well with the people of Gilead, most of whom mistrust modern science. Not that the old geezer sounded very representative of modern science. When I asked him for some good exercises, he recommended chopping wood and running down deer. Standing under the heavy clouds, Sar looked like a revivalist minister. His sermon was from Jeremiah 22:19. He shall be buried with the burial of an ass. The burial took place far from the graves of Boada's two victims and closer to the woods. We sang one song, Deborah just mouthing the words, still mustn't strain throat muscles. Sar solemnly asked the Lord to look mercifully upon all his creatures, and I muttered an amen. Then we walked back to the house, Deborah leaning on Sar's arm. She's still a little stiff. It was gray the rest of the day, and I sat in my room reading The King in Yellow, or rather, Chambers' collection of the same name. One look at the real book, so Chambers would claim, and I might not live to see the morrow, at least through the eyes of a sane man. That single gimmick, masterful I admit, seems to be his sole inspiration. I was disappointed that dinner was again made by Sar. Deborah was upstairs resting, he said. He sounded concerned, felt there were things wrong with her the doctor had overlooked. We ate our meal in silence, and I came back here immediately after washing the dishes. Feel very drowsy, and for some reason also rather depressed. It may be the gloomy weather. We are, after all, just animals, more affected by the sun and the seasons than we care to admit. More likely it was the absence of Deborah tonight. Hope she feels better. Note. The freezer still smells of the cat's body. Opened it tonight and got a strong whiff of decay. August 1st. Writing this, breaking habit, in early morning. Went to bed last night just after finishing the entry above, but was awakened around two by sounds coming from the woods. Wailing, deeper than before, followed by a low, guttural monologue. No words, at least that I could distinguish. If toads could talk... For some reason I fell asleep before the sounds ended, so I don't know what followed. Could very well have been an owl of some kind, and later a large bullfrog. But I quote, without comment, from the Glass Harmonica, July 31st. Lamas Eve, Sabbaths likely. Little energy to write tonight, and even less to write about. Come to think of it, I slept most of the day. Woke up at eleven, later took an afternoon nap. Alas, senile at thirty. Too tired to shave, and haven't had the energy to clean this place either. Thinking about work is easier than doing it. The ivy's beginning to cover the windows again, and the mildew's been climbing steadily up the walls. It's like a dark green band that keeps widening. 
Soon it will reach my books. Speaking of which, opened M.R. James at lunch today, and a silverfish slithered out. Omen? Played a little game with myself this evening. I just had one hell of a shock. While writing the above, I heard a soft tapping, like nervous fingers drumming on a table, and discovered an enormous spider, biggest of the summer, crawling only inches from my ankle. It must have been living behind this desk. When you can hear a spider walk across the floor, you know it's time to keep your socks on. Thank God for insecticide. Oh, yeah, that game. The what-if game. I probably play it too often. Vain attempt to enlarge realm of the possible? Heighten my own sensitivity? Or merely work myself into an icy sweat? I pose unpleasant questions for myself and consider the consequences. For example, what if this glorified chicken coop is sinking into quicksand? Wouldn't be at all surprised. What if the poorths are tired of me? What if I woke up inside my own coffin? What if I never see New York again? What if some horror stories aren't really fiction? If Machen sometimes told the truth? If there are white people? Malevolent little faces peering out of the moonlight. Whispers in the grass. Poisonous things in the woods. Perfect hate and evil in the world. Enough of this foolishness. Time for bed. August 9th. Read some Hawthorne in the morning, and over lunch reread this week's Hunterdon County Democrat for the dozenth time. Sar and Deborah were working somewhere in the fields, and I felt I ought to get some physical activity myself, but the thought of starting my exercises again after more than a week's laziness just seemed too unpleasant. I took a walk down the road, but only as far as a smashed-up cement culvert half-buried in the woods. I was bored, but Gilead just seemed too far away. Was going to cut the ivy surrounding my windows when I got back, but decided the place looks more artistic covered in vines. Rationalization? Chatted with Porths about politics, the world situation, a little cosmology, blah blah blah. Dinner wasn't very good, probably because I'd been looking forward to it all day. The lamb was underdone and the beans were cold. Still, I'm always the gentleman and was almost pleased when Deborah agreed to my offer to do the dishes. I've been doing them a lot lately. I didn't have much interest in reading tonight and would have been up for some television, but Sars recently gotten into one of his religious kicks and began mumbling prayers to himself immediately after dinner. Deborah, more human, wanted to watch the TV news. She seems to have an insatiable curiosity about world events, yet she claims the isolation here appeals to her. Absorbed in his chanting, Sar made me uncomfortable. I didn't like his face. And so, after doing the dishes, I left. I've been listening to the radio for the last hour or so. I recall days when I'd have gotten uptight at having wasted an hour, but out here I've lost all track of time. Feel adrift. A little disconcerting, but healthy, I'm sure. Shut off the radio a moment ago and now realize my room is filled with crickets. Up close, their sound is hardly pleasant. Cross between a radiator and a tea kettle, very shrill. They'd been sounding off all night, but I thought it was interference on the radio. Now I notice them, they're all over the room. A couple of dozen, I should think. Hate to kill them, really. They're one of the few insects I can stand, along with ladybugs and fireflies. But they make such a racket. Wonder how they got in. August 14th. Played with Felix all morning, mainly watching him chase insects, climb trees, doze in the sun. Spectator sport. After lunch, went back to my room to look up something in Lovecraft and discovered the books were out of order. 
Saki, for example, was filed under S, whereas, whether out of fastidiousness or pedantry, I've always preferred to file him as Monroe. This is definitely one of the poorths doing. I'm pissed they didn't mention coming in here, but also a little surprised they'd have any interest in this stuff. Arranged them correctly again, then sat down to read Lovecraft's essay on supernatural horror in literature. It upset me to see how little I've actually read, how far I still have to go. So many obscure authors, so many books I've never come across. Left me feeling depressed and tired, so I took a nap for the rest of the afternoon. Over dinner, vegetable omelet rather tasteless, Deborah continued to question us on current events. It's getting to be like junior high school with daily newspaper quizzes. Don't know how she got started on this or why the sudden interest, but it obviously annoys the hell out of Sar. Sar used to be a sucker for her little girl pleadings. I remember how he used to carry her upstairs, becoming pathetically tender the moment she'd say, Oh, honey, I'm so tired. But now he just becomes angry. Often he goes off morose and alone to pray, and the only time he laughs is when he watches television. Tonight, thank God, he was in a mood to forego the prayers, and so, after dinner, we all watched a lot of offensively ignorant programs. I was disturbed to find myself laughing along with the canned laughter, but I have to admit that the TV helps us get along better together. Came back here after the news. Not very tired, having slept so much of the afternoon, so began to read John Christopher's The Possessors, but good though it was, my mind began to wander to all the books I haven't yet read, and I got so depressed I turned on the radio. Find it takes my mind off of things. August 19th. Slept long into the morning, then walked down to the brook, scratching groggily. Deborah was kneeling by the water, lost it seemed in daydream, and I was embarrassed because I'd come upon her talking to herself. We exchanged a few insincere words, and she went back toward the house sat by some rocks, throwing blades of grass into the water. The sun on my head felt almost painful, as if my brain were growing too large for my skull. I turned and looked at the farmhouse. In the distance, it looked like a picture at the other end of a large room, the grass for a carpet, the ceiling, the sky. Deborah was stroking a cat, then seemed to grow angry when it struggled from her arms. I could hear the screen door slam as she went into the kitchen, but the sound reached me so long after the visual image that the whole scene struck me as somehow fake. I gazed up at the maples behind me, and they seemed trees out of a cheap postcard, the kind in which paint is thinly dabbed over a black-and-white photograph. If you look closely, you can see that the green in the trees is not merely in the leaves, but rather floats as a vapor over leaves, branches, parts of the sky. The trees behind me seem the productions of a poor painter, the color and shape not quite meshing. Parts of the sky were green, and pieces of the green seemed to float away from my vision. No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't follow them. Far down the stream, I could see something small and kicking. A black beetle, legs in the air, borne swiftly along in the current. Then it was gone. Thumb through the Bible while I ate my lunch. Mostly cookies. By late afternoon, I was playing word games while I lay on the grass near my room. The shrill twitter of the birds, I would say the birds singing in the sun and inexorably I'd continue with the sun dying in the moonlight, the moonlight falling on the floor, the floor sagging to the cellar, the cellar filling with water, the water seeping into the ground, the ground twisting into smoke, the smoke staining the sky, the sky burning in the sun, the sun dying in the moonlight, the moonlight falling on the floor. Melancholy progressions that held my mind like a whirlpool. Sar woke me for dinner. I had dozed off and my clothes were damp from the grass. 
As we walked up to the house together, he whispered that earlier in the day he'd come upon his wife bending over me, peering into my sleeping face. Her eyes were wide, he said, like Boada's. I said I didn't understand why he was telling me this. Because, he recited in a whisper gripping my arm, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I recognized that. Jeremiah 17.9 Dinner was especially uncomfortable. The two of them sat picking at their food, occasionally raising their eyes to each other like children in a staring contest. I longed for the conversations of our early days, inconsequential though they must have been, and wondered where things had gone wrong. The meal was dry and unappetizing, but the dessert looked delicious. Chocolate mousse made from an old family recipe. Deborah had served it earlier in the summer and knew both Sar and I loved it. This time, however, she gave none to herself, explaining that she had to watch her weight. I will not eat any, Sar shouted, and with that he snatched my dish from in front of me, grabbed his own, and hurled them both against the wall where they splattered like mud balls. Deborah was very still. She said nothing, just sat there watching us. Thank heaven she didn't look particularly afraid of this madman, but I was. He may have read my thoughts, because as I got up from my seat, he said much more gently in the soft voice that once had been normal to him. Sorry, Jeremy, I know you hate scenes. We'll pray for each other, all right? Are you okay? I asked Deborah with more bravado than I felt. I'm going out now, but I'll stay if you think you'll need me for anything. She stared at me with a slight smile and shook her head. I raised my eyebrows and nodded toward her husband, and she shrugged. Things will work out, she said. I could hear Sara laughing as I shut the door. When I snapped on the light out here, I took off my shirt and stood in front of the little mirror. It had been nearly a week since I'd showered and I'd become used to the smell of my body. My hair had wound itself into greasy brown curls, my beard was at least two weeks old, and my eyes... Well, the eyes that stared back at me looked like those of an old man. The whites were turning yellow like old teeth. I looked at my chest and arms, flabby at thirty, and I thought of the frightening alterations in my friend Sar. I knew I'd have to get out of here. Just glanced at my watch. It's not quite late, 2.30. I've been packing my things. August 20th. I woke about an hour ago and continued packing. Lots of books to put away, but I'm just about done. It's not even 9 a.m. yet, much earlier than I normally get up, but I guess the thought of leaving here fills me with energy. The first thing I saw on rising was a garden spider whose body was as big as some of the mice the cats have killed. It was sitting on the ivy that grows over my windowsill, fortunately on the other side of the screen. Apparently, it had had good hunting all summer, preying on the insects that live in the leaves. Concluding that nothing so big and fearsome has a right to live, I held the spray can against the screen and doused the creature with poison. It struggled halfway up the screen, then stopped, arched its legs, and dropped backwards into the ivy. I planned to walk into town this morning and telephone the office in Flemington where I rented my car. If they can have one ready today, I'll hitch there to pick it up. Otherwise, I'll spend tonight here and pick it up tomorrow. I'll be leaving a little early in the season, but the Porths already have my month's rent, so they shouldn't be too offended. And anyway, how could I be expected to stick around here with all that nonsense going on? Never knowing when my room might be ransacked, having to put up with Sar's insane suspicions and Deborah's moodiness. Before I go into town, though, I really must shave and shower for the good people of Gilead. I've been sitting inside here waiting for some sign the Porths are up, but as yet, it's almost nine, I've heard nothing. I wouldn't care to barge in on them while they're having breakfast or, worse, just getting up, so I'll just wait here by the window till I see them. 
10 o'clock now and they still haven't come out. Perhaps they're having a talk. I'll give them half an hour or more and then I'm going in. Here my journal ends. Until today, almost a week later, I have not cared to set down any of the events that followed. But here, in the temporary safety of this hotel room, protected by a heavy brass travel lock I had sent up from the hardware store down the street, watched over by the good people of Flemington, and perhaps by something not good, I can continue my narrative. The first thing I noticed as I approached the house was that the shades were drawn, even in the kitchen. Had they, I wondered, decided to sleep late this morning? Throughout my thirty years, I have come to associate drawn shades with a foul smell. The smell of a sick room, of shame-faced poverty and food gone bad, of people lying too long beneath blankets. But I was not ready for the stench of decay that met me when I opened the kitchen door and stepped into the darkness. Something had died in that room, and not recently. At the moment the smell first hit, four little shapes scrambled across the linoleum toward me and out into the daylight. The poorest cats. By the other wall, a lump of shadow moved. A pale face caught light penetrating the shades. Sar's voice, its habitual softness exaggerated to a whisper. Jeremy, I thought you were still asleep. Can I? No. Don't turn on the light. He got to his feet, a black form towering against the window, fiddling nervously with the kitchen door, the tin doorknob, the rubber band stored around it, the fringe at the bottom of the drawn window shade. I opened it wider and let in more sunlight. It fell on the dark thing at his feet over which he had been crouching. Deborah, the flesh at her throat torn and wrinkled like the skin of an old apple. Her clothing lay in a heap beside her. She appeared long dead. The eyes were shriveled, sunken into sockets black as a skull's. I think I may have staggered at that moment, because he came toward me. His steady, unblinking gaze looked so sincere. But why was he smiling? I'll make you understand, he was saying, or something like that. Even now I feel my face twisting into horror as I try to write of him. I had to kill her. You... She tried to kill me, he went on, silencing all questions. Same thing that possessed Boada possessed her. My hand played behind my back with the bottom of the window shade. But her throat... That happened a long time ago. Boada did it. I had nothing to do with... That part. Suddenly his voice rose. Don't you understand? She tried to stab me with the bread knife. He turned, stooped over, and clumsy in the darkness, began feeling about him on the floor. Where is that thing? He was mumbling. I'll show you. As he crossed a beam of sunlight, something gleamed like a silver handle on the back of his shirt. Thinking, perhaps, to help him search, I pulled gently on the window shade, then released it. It snapped upward like a gunshot, flooding the room with light. From deep within the center of his back protruded the dull wooden haft of the bread knife, buried almost completely but for an inch or two of gleaming steel. He must have heard my intake of breath. That sight chills me even today, the grisly absurdity of the thing. He must have heard me, because immediately he stood, his back to me, and reached up behind himself towards the knife, his arms stretching in vain, his fingers curling around nothing. The blade had been planted in a spot he couldn't reach. He turned toward me and shrugged in embarrassment, a child caught in a foolish error. Oh, yeah, he said, grinning at his own weakness. I forgot it was there. Suddenly he thrust his face into mine, fixing me in a gaze that never wavered, his eyes wide as if with candor, 
It's easy for us to forget things, he explained, and then, still smiling, still watching, volunteered that last trivial piece of information. That final message whose words released me from inaction and left me free to dash from the room, to sprint in panic down the road to town, pursued by what had once been the farmer, Saraporeth. It serves no purpose here to dwell on my flight down that twisting dirt road, breathing in such deep gasps that I was soon moaning with every breath. How, with my enemy racing behind me, not even winded, his steps never flagging, I veered into the woods. How I finally lost him, perhaps from the inexperience of whatever thing now controlled his body, and was able to make my way back to the road, only to come upon him again as I rounded a bend. His laughter as he followed me, and how it continued long after I had evaded him a second time, and how, after hiding until nightfall in the old cement culvert, I ran the rest of the way in pitch darkness, stumbling in the roots torn by vines nearly blinding myself when I ran into a low branch, until I arrived in Gilead, filthy, exhausted, and nearly incoherent. Suffice it to say that my escape was largely a matter of luck, a physical wreck fleeing something, oblivious to pain or fatigue, but that, beyond mere luck, I had been impelled by an almost ecstatic sense of dread produced by his last words to me, that last communication from an alien face smiling inches from my own, which I chose to take as his final warning. Sometimes we forget to blink. You can read the rest in the newspapers. The Hunterdon County Democrat covered most of the story, though its man wrote it up as merely another lunatic wife-slaying. The result of loneliness, religious mania, and a mysteriously tainted well, traces of insecticide were found, among other things, in the water, the Somerset reporter took a different slant, implying that I had been the third member of an erotic triangle and that Sar had murdered his wife in a fit of jealousy. Needless to say, by this time I was past caring what was written about me. I was too haunted by visions of that lonely abandoned farmhouse, the wails of its hungry cats, and by the sight of Deborah's corpse, discovered by the police protruding from that hastily dug grave beyond the cornfield. Accompanied by state troopers, I returned to my ivy-covered outbuilding. A bread knife had been plunged deep into its door, splintering the wood on the other side. The blood on it was Sars. My journal had been hidden under my mattress, and so it was untouched, but I look at them now, piled in cardboard boxes besides my suitcase. My precious books had been hurled about the room, their bindings slashed. My summer is over, and now I sit inside here all day, listening to the radio, waiting for the next report. Sar, or his corpse, has not been found. I should think the evidence was clear enough to corroborate my story, but I suppose I should have expected the reception it received from the police. They didn't laugh at my theory of possession, not to my face anyway, but they ignored it in obvious embarrassment. Some see a nice young bookworm gone slightly deranged after contact with a murderer. Others believe my story to be the desperate fabrication of an adulterer trying to avoid the blame for Deborah's death. I can understand their reluctance to accept my explanation of the events, for it's one that goes a little beyond the natural, a little beyond the scientific considerations of motive, modus operandi, and fingerprints. But I find it quite unnerving that at least one official, an assistant district attorney, I think, though I'm afraid I'm rather ignorant of these matters, believes I am guilty of murder. There has, of course, been no arrest. Still, I've been given the time-honored admonition against leaving town. 
The theory proposing my own complicity in the events is, I must admit, rather ingenious, and so carefully worked out that it will surely gain more adherence than my own. This public official is going to try to prove that I killed poor Deborah in a fit of passion and immediately afterward disposed of Sar. He points out that their marriage had been an observably happy one until I arrived, a disturbing influence from the city. My motive, he says, was simple lust, unrequited to be sure, aggravated by boredom. The heat, the insects, and most of all the oppressive loneliness, all constituted an environment alien to any I'd been accustomed to, and all worked to unhinge my reason. I have no cause for fear, however, because this affidavit will certainly establish my innocence. Surely no one can ignore the evidence of my journal, though I can imagine someone of implacable hostility maintaining that I wrote it not at the farm, but here in the Union Hotel this very week. What galls me is not the suspicions of a few detectives, but the predicament their suspicions place me in. Quite simply, I cannot run away. I am compelled to remain, locked up in this room, potential prey to whatever the thing that was Sarporeth has now become. The thing that was once a cat, and once a woman, and once... What? A large white moth? A serpent? A shrew-like thing with wicked teeth? A police chief? A president? A boy with eyes of blood that sits beneath my window? Lord, who will believe me? It was that night that started it all, I'm convinced of it now. The night I made those strange signs in the tree. The night the crickets missed a beat. I'm not a philosopher, and I can supply no ready explanation for why this new evil has been released into the world. I'm only a poor scholar, a bookworm, and I must content myself with mumbling a few phrases that keep running through my mind. Phrases out of books read long ago when such abstractions meant at most a pleasant shudder. I'm haunted by scraps from the myth of Pandora and by a semantic discussion I once read comparing unnatural and supernatural, and something about a tiny rent in the fabric of the universe, just large enough to let something in, something not of nature and hard to kill, something with its own obscure purpose. Ironically, the police may be right. Perhaps it was my visit to Gilead that brought about the deaths. Perhaps I had a hand in letting loose the force that, to date, has snuffed out the lives of four hens, three cats, and at least two people, but will hardly be content to stop there. I've just checked. He hasn't moved from the steps of the courthouse, and even when I look out my window, the rose spectacles never waver. Who knows where the eyes beneath them point? Who knows if they remember to blink? Lord, this heat is sweltering. My shirt is sticking to my skin, and droplets of sweat are rolling down my face and dripping onto this page, making the ink run. My hand is tired from writing. I think it's time to end this affidavit. If, as I now believe possible, I inadvertently called down evil from the sky and began the events at Porth Farm, my death will only be fitting. And after my death, many more. We are all, I'm afraid, in danger. Please, then, forgive this prophet of doom, old at thirty, his last Jeremiad. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved.
Hey everybody, Tycho here. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the events at Porth Farm. There's going to be, uh, hopefully, if everything goes according to plan and it all works out and I'm able to get everything to go the way I want it to, I'm going to be starting up a YouTube channel uh, where I just kind of talk about the story, talk about the author, talk about some fun little things that happened while I was recording and maybe just kind of whatever crosses my mind because I tend to do stream of consciousness like I'm doing right now. It should be something interesting. I don't I don't foresee them being very long. I kind of wrote out a script for the first thing I want to do, and uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be too long, so probably not bad. I'll make sure to post that on my Twitter. I'll make sure to, to uh, mention that in the episodes here, uh, so if you want to check it out, feel free to check it out. If you like the podcast, if you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. I, I, would, I would love to see that, especially if it's something critical. I want to know if I'm doing something bad so that I have a chance to fix it and make the show better. I want it to be as good as it can be. So please feel free to leave a rating and a review. Uh, you can contact me on Twitter at WeirdTalesPod, and you can email me at theweirdtalespodcast at gmail.com. And I hope you enjoyed the events at Porth Farm, and have a great week. Great start to the recording. Accidentally hit the button that closed the iBooks app. Drop the iPod. Mondays are great. Also, I have to poop, so we need to make this recording fast. Ghost stories of an antiquary and a silver fish. Silverfish. Silverfish, not silverfish. It's a silverfish, not a silverfish. There has, of course, been no arrest. Still, I've been given the time-honored admonition against leaving town. Hey, you. Don't leave town. <laughs> Glass Cannon reference. Anybody listens to the Glass Cannon podcast, which you should do because it's awesome.